Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Welcome back to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Podcast. This week we're going to look at anemia. As an aside, just before we get started, uh, I recently discovered Dr. Mike Curlew's CCFP Podcast. He's from Sioux Lookout. His lecture format is focused on OSCE content rather than the 99 topics, so I think it complements what I'm trying to achieve here really well. I find his lecture style a bit too energetic for me, but his content is fantastic. He has excellent audience engagement, and he has a knack for simplifying complex content. Uh, The link's in the show notes, and I highly recommend it. So this week with anemia, there are nine key features in this topic. Key feature number one, assess the risk of decompensation of anemic patients i.e. the volume status, the presence of congestive heart failure, angina, or other disease states, to decide if prompt transfusion or volume replacement is necessary. Key feature number two, in a patient with anemia, classify the anemia as micro, normal, or macrocytic by using the MCV or smear test result to direct further assessment and treatment. Key feature number three, in all patients with anemia, determine the iron status before initiating treatment. Number four, In a patient with iron deficiency, investigate further to find the cause. Number five, consider and look for anemia in appropriate patients, i.e. those at risk for blood loss, or in patients with hemolysis, i.e. mechanical valves, whether they are symptomatic or not, and in those with new or worsening symptoms of angina or CHF. Key feature number six, in patients with macrocytic anemia, consider the possibility of vitamin B12 deficiency, look for other manifestations of the deficiency, i.e. neurological symptoms, in order to make the diagnosis of pernicious anemia when it is present. Key feature number seven, as part of well-baby care, consider anemia in high-risk populations or in high-risk patients, i.e. those who are pale or have a low iron diet or poor weight gain. Key feature number eight, when a patient is discovered to have a slightly low hemoglobin, look carefully for a cause, i.e. hemoglobinopathies, menorrhagia, occult bleeding, previously undiagnosed chronic disease, as one cannot assume that this is normal for them. Number nine, in patients with menorrhagia, determine the need to look for other causes of the anemia. So let's dive a little deeper into this. Key feature number one, assess the risk of decomposition of anemic patients to decide if prompt transfusion or volume replacement is necessary. So the threshold to transfuse patients who are anemic but clinically stable has in recent years been lowered due to evidence of poorer outcomes including hospital-acquired infection risk if transfused at higher levels. As an aside, what do we mean by clinically stable with anemia? We're looking for potential or real signs of end-organ damage. So is the patient unconscious or not easily rousable? Is the patient tachycardic at rest? Is the patient short of breath at rest? Or unable to speak in full sentences when they were able to before? Is the patient syncopal? Do they have an orthostatic drop? So back to transfusion, there are quite a few recent sets of guidelines published and available, um, and in my review of this topic, each country and health authority seems to treat this slightly differently. But in general, there's a few trends that the newest evidence is leaning towards. In general, it's leaning towards a more restrictive transfusion strategy, while still taking into account the clinical condition of the patient. In general, a restrictive transfusion strategy means considering transfusion in healthy patients only below a hemoglobin of 70 which is very different from what was normal clinical practice not too long ago. This restrictive strategy has emerged because we've come to understand 
that transfusing at higher hemoglobin levels has more harm than benefit, including for patient-centered endpoints like hospital length of stay and mortality. So I chose the American Association of Blood Banks, or AABB, guidelines to go over here, as I feel they're fairly succinct and representative of what's recommended in Canada. So to start with, at a hemoglobin less than 60, transfusion is recommended except in exceptional circumstances. Between a level of 60 and 70, transfusion generally is likely to be indicated. Between 70 and 80, transfusion should be considered in post-op surgical patients, including those with stable cardiovascular disease, after evaluating the patient's clinical status. Between 80 and 100, transfusion generally not indicated, but should be considered for some populations. So for those with or who are symptomatic, those with ongoing or anticipated ongoing bleeding, or ACS, acute coronary syndrome with ischemia. And hemoglobin above 100, transfusion really isn't indicated in any populations here. So for a non-bleeding patient, you should transfuse one unit at a time. This is also a change from what's happened in the past. As a rule, in healthy non-bleeding patients, transfusing one unit will give you a hemoglobin rise of about 10. You transfuse that unit, you reevaluate, and you start over from the beginning. So if you've got them from 60 to 70, then you're in the above 70 range. If they're asymptomatic, they may not need another unit transfused. A Cochrane review from 2012 that summarizes much of the current evidence for transfusion can be found in the show notes for those who want a bit more depth than what I've just went over here. And it's called Transfusion Thresholds and Other Strategies for Guiding Allergenic Red Blood Cell Transfusion. And this evidence seems to be fairly strong because newer evidence since the 2012 Cochrane Review holds that this strategy works even in critically ill patients. So a 2014 meta-analysis published by the American Journal of Medicine titled The Impact of More Restrictive Blood Transfusion Strategies on Clinical Outcomes, a meta-analysis and systematic review, came to the conclusion that in patients with critical illness or bleed, restricting blood transfusions by using a hemoglobin trigger of less than 70 significantly reduces cardiac events, re-bleeding, bacterial infections, and total mortality. A less restrictive transfusion strategy was not effective. And there's yet another paper recently that holds the same in septic shock, and that paper is linked in the show notes as well. So remember that all these thresholds apply for the asymptomatic patient. If you have a patient who's symptomatic related to their anemia, they probably should be transfused and you're not looking at the hemoglobin threshold. This is strictly looking at asymptomatic or very minimally symptomatic patients who may be significantly anemic and do not need to be transfused at the same thresholds that would have been used previously. Key feature number two, in a patient with anemia, classify the anemia as micro, normal, or macrocytic by using the MCV or smear test result to direct further assessment and treatment. So this is straight out of med school. An MCV less than 80 femtoliters is microcytic. Uh, the acronym to remember here is TAILS, so thalassemia, anemia of chronic disease, iron deficiency, which is by far the most common cause, and lead, but really any heavy metal poisoning. Uh, which isn't that common, and then sideroblastic anemia, which can be related to myelodysplastic syndrome or AML. The next step in evaluation of a microcytic anemia is getting a ferritin level or iron studies done. If the ferritin's low, this is 100% iron deficiency. Treat it with at least 30 milligrams of elemental iron a day and recheck the hemoglobin in two weeks. If ferritin is normal or high and you have a low serum iron and low TIBC, 
then think of anemia of chronic disease, so infection, inflammation, malignancy. If serum iron is high, with a high normal or high ferritin, think iron overload. This can also be when a peripheral smear can come in handy to look for a sideroblastic anemia. If there's teardrop cells, target cells, splenomegaly, or a positive family history, think of the alpha and beta thalassemias. So between uh, MCV of 80 and 100, that's normal CIDIC, the acronym here is ABRA, A-B-B-R-A. So anemia of chronic disease, bone marrow disorders, so bone marrow infiltration or failure, renal failure, especially chronic renal failure, and acute hemorrhage or hemolytic anemia. In these patients, get a reticulocyte count done, and you can calculate a corrected reticulocyte index, and that can show you if the bone marrow is responding appropriately to the anemia and point you in the direction of a diagnosis. If you have an MCV over 100, that's macrocytic. The most common one we'll see in family practice is B12 or folate deficiency, but also common is chronic alcoholism and then hypothyroidism and myelodysplastic syndrome. In these patients, get a smear done to look for red blood cells characteristic of MDS, but often these are treated empirically with B12 supplementation as well. For a good summary of what I just talked about and a good algorithm, uh, UpToDate has this, evaluation of anemia in the adult according to the MCV. The link is in the show notes. Key feature number three, in all patients with anemia, determine the iron status before initiating treatment. So this point is straightforward, although I would disagree somewhat in that there is a common demographic of patients in which I would generally initiate treatment on a presumptive basis for iron deficiency anemia while waiting iron studies. And these patients are found to be anemic with a microcytic anemia and usually associated with a borderline high or high RDW, meaning that it's been going on for a while. To fit in this group, patients should also have a fairly clear reason to be iron deficient on history. So either they have poor iron intake, they may be vegetarian, vegan, or they have an obvious source of bleeding. The most common is heavy or heavier periods. In these patients, I would start them on iron supplementation while awaiting the iron studies. Note that this is in young women only. In those over the age of 40, they need to have an endometrial ultrasound and endometrial biopsy to exclude malignancy before treating. Iron study interpretation can be difficult, but the most common abnormality on iron studies that we see in clinic is iron deficiency anemia, which thankfully is easy to diagnose on the iron studies. If the ferritin is low, typically less than 10, this is pathognomonic for iron deficiency anemia. Treat as such and reevaluate. I'd like to direct you to Perth Hematology's excellent PDF of the different di disease states that you can see on iron studies, and I've put that link in the show notes as well. Key feature number four, in a patient with iron deficiency, investigate further to find the cause. So you can break the causes of iron deficiency up into two categories. Either you have decreased input or intake or increased losses. So decreased intake could be dietary. So question them on diet. It's common to develop iron deficiency anemia in vegetarians due, the, due to the lack of red meat, which contains heme iron, which is readily absorbed in our gut. Um, other good non-heme sources of dietary iron include dark green leafy vegetables, iron-fortified bread and cereals, which is all of them in Canada, beans, tofu, and dried fruits, and ask about iron supplementation. Thinking of losses, men as a rule lose about 1 milligram of iron per day, most in the hair and nails, and women lose 2 milligrams, hair, nails, and menstrual period. The point here is that iron deficiency anemia is common, the cause is often relatively easy to find or straightforward to find, but you need to be looking for it.
There's a really good approach to the diagnosis of anemia in adults put out by the Mayo Clinic Proceedings, and I've got that link in the show notes as well for you. Key feature number five, consider and look for anemia in appropriate patients or in patients with hemolysis, so mechanical valves, whether they are symptomatic or not, and in those patients with new or worsening symptoms of angina or CHF. So this key feature also seems fairly straightforward. Anemia in the elderly can cause a variety of symptoms, and complicating the issue is that for some patients, they can have profound anemia and not really feel any different from their baseline, which may be poor to begin with, and they may look pale, which can also be their baseline. So the point here is that you need to have a low threshold to look for anemia um, anytime you think that it may be contributing to illness. So some of the symptoms that elderly patients with anemia can complain of include shortness of breath, especially worsening shortness of breath, decreased exercise tolerance, lightheadedness, or falls. They can develop cardiac sequelae, such as angina or worsening in their baseline angina, CHF, or decompensated CHF. The feature text gives some of this away, but some things to ask on history include any history of new or worsening angina, new or worsening shortness of breath, new or worsening lightheadedness, new or worsening fatigue, Ask about any syncopal episodes or syncopal symptoms, pre-syncopal symptoms. Do they have a mechanical heart valve? Are they on blood thinners? So aspirin, uh, warfarin, or the NOAX, the novel oral anticoagulants. Do they take NSAIDs? Have they noticed blood when coughing if they vomit or in their stool? Are they taking iron supplementation? Do they have any history of bleeding? Any blood dyscrasias? Any family history of bleeding disorders? Any recent surgery? You need to think of and test for anemia in elderly patients with the symptoms as above, but especially in those patients with vague symptoms such as, I just feel off, or sometimes I get lightheaded and I never used to. The clinical signs we are taught in medical school to look for include conjunctival pallor, uh, palmar pallor, and signs of CHF such as a displaced apex. As well, look for jaundice, a feature of hemolytic anemias. In general, though, the physical exam signs, especially pallor, unless you get a really significant anemia, you're not going to be finding them. If you're convinced their conjunctiva is pale, though, they're probably quite anemic by that point. Key feature number six, in patients with macrocytic anemia, consider the possibility of vitamin B12 deficiency and look for manifestations of the deficiency, i.e. neurological symptoms, in order to make the diagnosis of pernicious anemia when it is present. So then, once you get the hemoglobin back that you did after the last key feature and they're anemic, make sure to look at the MCV. So for high MCVs, you should consider that they may be B12 deficient. And in our clinic, if you're thinking of anemia in a patient, they usually get the B12 test done up front. As a side note, even though folate is an integral part of B12 metabolism, it's not useful to test for in the modern era. Um, and I've got one good reference in the show notes for you. I want to elaborate on it. Um, other than to say that we have so much folate in our diet and supplemented in foods that folate deficiency is vanishingly rare in North America. So the main hint you're going to have that a patient may be B12 deficient is a macrocytic anemia, but they can also develop clinical signs or symptoms. To start with, it's important to know that it typically takes years of inadequate B12 intake or absorption for symptoms to develop, as our normal B12 stores are large relative to losses. The classic clinical picture of B12 deficiency due to pernicious anemia, so poor absorption, was that of a prematurely gray person of northern European descent 
whose skin was lemon-colored, reflecting the simultaneous presence of both anemia and jaundice, mentally sluggish, had a shiny tongue characteristic of atrophic glossitis, and a shuffling broad-based gait. Examination revealed hematologic changes, so macrocytic anemia with oval macrocytes in increased neutrophil lobulation and neurologic abnormalities, loss of vibration sense, and a positive Romberg test. So this classic picture isn't very common, and more likely you're going to see the patient that has hard-to-characterize neuropsychiatric problems um, consisting of paresthesias, numbness, weakness, loss of dexterity, impaired memory, personality changes, with emphasis on kind of vague or changing symptoms. The more serious neurological disorder that is rare but important to consider is subacute combined degeneration of the spinal cord, which we all learned about in medical school. So B12 deficiency here leads to degeneration of the dorsal and lateral white matter of the spinal cord and produces slowly progressive weakness, sensory ataxia, paresthesias, and then ultimately spasticity, paraplegia, and incontinence. So B12 supplementation can halt or partially reverse this process, so it's important to look for it. And lastly, B12 deficiency is one of the treatable causes of dementia and should be part of your workup to look for reversible causes in a newly diagnosed demented patient. Key feature number seven, as part of well baby care, consider anemia in high-risk populations, i.e. those living in poverty, or in high-risk patients, those who are pale or have a low iron diet or poor weight gain. So the majority of anemia found in newborns and infants is related to iron deficiency. Iron deficiency is relatively common in this age group, and your normal well baby care should look for signs that they may be at risk. Most of a newborn's iron stores are created in the third trimester, and that's important to know for what we'll talk about later. At birth, newborns typically have about 75 milligrams per kilogram stored, and the normal newborn dietary requirements are about 11 milligrams per day. Um, this stat from the CPS is based on an assumption of about 10% of the elemental iron being absorbed. So human breast milk contains very little iron, on the order of 0.35 milligrams per liter, which, even though it's absorbed better than other sources, would still mean babies would need to drink 10 plus liters per day to keep up their iron stores. The truth is that they typically don't, and that's okay. Infants without risk factors have enough iron to make it till at least 6 months before their iron stores are depleted, and this is when other dietary sources should be introduced anyways. Infants with risk factors, though, often require supplementation before this point. So continuing human breast milk exclusively or as a major part of the diet past six months can put infants at risk of iron deficiency. A cow's milk diet requires iron supplementation when initiated, as the iron in it seems to be even more poorly absorbed compared to human milk. Um, as mentioned before, most of a newborn's iron stores are created in the third trimester, so premature or low birth weight babies can be at risk due to reduced stores to begin with. Other causes of anemia in babies include anything that can increase iron usage or turnover, including the use of EPO at birth for anemia prematurity, um, because it uses up their iron stores, any significant bleeding event, or infant obesity. Uh, low SES or socioeconomic status and poverty is another risk factor for anemia in infants and children. So the CPS or Canadian Pediatric Society has an handout iron needs in babies and children that I'll put in the show notes which describes some of this in a little bit of detail and is something you can give to mothers. If you need to supplement, how much and how should you do it? This is fairly easy if they're formula fed. 
both term and premature infants' iron requirements are met by any of the age-appropriate iron-supplemented formulas on the market. They don't need iron drops on top of that. Breastfed term infants need 1 mg per kilogram per day, starting at about 4 months. So this can be through the use of iron drops, preferably through iron-rich foods, which you're introducing anyway, so iron-fortified rice cereals. They need two servings a day of that. Uh, breastfed premature infants need 2 to 4 milligrams per kilogram per day and should start supplementation at about 2 weeks with iron drops. Key feature number 8, when a patient is discovered to have a slightly low hemoglobin level, look carefully for a cause, as one cannot assume that this is normal for them. So I'm glad they mentioned this as a feature. This is one of the two seemingly innocuous signs that I keep in my head with a very low index of suspicion of something serious going on. The other sign, as an aside, is subtle lower limb neurological signs without an apparent cause in the emergency department. So it's quite unusual to have an entirely benign anemia. In a patient with new anemia of unknown cause, you need to take a detailed history looking for reasons that the patient might have decreased hemoglobin production or increased hemoglobin loss. Um, these are really the only two ways that you can be anemic, and it's the way I like to categorize it. So looking at decreased hemoglobin production, is there a reason for their bone marrow to be suppressed? Do they have a past or current cancer, constitutional symptoms, frequent infections? Um, is the patient B12, folate, or iron deficient? Um, ask about their diet, about mineral and vitamin supplementation, uh, history of anemia. Looking for increased hemoglobin losses. Is there signs and symptoms of blood loss? Have they been vomiting or coughing up blood? Coffee ground vomit, uh, hematochesia, melina stools, uh, recent trauma or injury, aspirin, NSAID use, uh, warfarin use. In women, are they pregnant? How heavy? How long do their periods last? Is there reason to suspect red blood cell destruction? So mechanical heart valve, endocarditis, autoimmune disorders. And then the chronicity is important. So is this news to the patient? Did they know they were anemic before? Have they felt this way before? If they're symptomatic, how long have they been symptomatic for? Have they had previous transfusions for this same problem? Do they have liver disease? Do they have kidney disease? Is the red cell distribution width increased, which can point to chronicity as well? With mild anemia, most patients are asymptomatic and there won't be any appreciable signs on physical exam, and mostly you'll just pick this up incidentally. Uh, lab investigation is really useful for classifying the anemia based on the MCV, as we've talked about before, and specific features on the peripheral smear. But the main point with key feature number eight is not to chalk up a mild anemia as normal. And last but not least, key feature number nine, in anemic patients with menorrhagia, determine the need to look for other causes of the anemia. So menorrhagia is a common problem and a common cause of anemia, um, and even sometimes a cause of severe anemia. Uh, the short answer here is that it's fine to assume that the anemia, without signs of non-PV bleeding or worrying history, is caused by menorrhagia. You can treat appropriately with the oral contraceptive pill or transexamic acid, an IUD, endometrial ablation, whatever you choose to do and supplement with iron if they're deficient. If you repeat a CBC at six weeks to three months, and if the anemia has failed to resolve, then you need to go chasing it and looking for other causes. And that wraps up anemia as a topic. Any comments, please find me on Twitter or fire me off an email. I'd love to collaborate with anybody out there who wants to help me with scripts and come up with content, so please do get in touch.